They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Decentralized Revolution. I'm Aaron and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder about the Mises Pack money bomb Coming up on August 20th, it's a Thursday, and it happens to be Ron Paul's 85th birthday, so we thought that's a fitting time to to have our rescheduled money bomb. We'll be doing several live streams on our social media accounts beginning at noon with, among others, Tom Woods, Dave Smith, Scott Horton, Maj Toure. We'll be screening the documentary, The Monopoly on Violence, and there's more stuff, too. Uh, so you definitely want to be there for that. We'll also be giving away an AR-15 rifle, some silver rounds, and maybe some other Mises Caucus swag. And why we're doing this is that we want to get to the point where we have at least 500 recurring monthly donors to Mises Pack, and because that's how we afford to help great local libertarian candidates, as well as issues coalitions that promote decentralization. We've already uh, given money to one or two candidates this cycle and are about to, to give money to a couple more. And we want to be able to support as many as we can with uh, as much as seems prudent. Um, I think the current count we have is somewhere between 350 and 375 recurring monthly donors. So we're shooting for 150, give or take, between now and August 20th. So if you like this podcast and you like what the Mises Caucus is doing, you want to support Mises Pack, we would love to have you come on board, whether it's for just a few dollars a month or for a few hundred a month, like a couple people do, I think, uh, or somewhere in between, whatever you can do. Uh, we're just trying to get that number from 350 something up to 500. So uh, $5 a month is just fine. Uh, if you're a current monthly donor, you're already entered in the door prize drawings for the rifle and everything else. Um, if you're not already a current monthly donor, there are two ways to enter. A, you can become a recurring monthly donor. Just go to takehumanaction.com. And if you do that between now and the evening of August 20th, um, you're, you're registered or you can just sign up for the drawing if you can't contribute right now. There is an option to enter without contributing, which we understand why a lot of people can't um, this year, especially. Uh, so just go to lpmesiscaucus.com slash moneybomb, or as I said, takehumanaction.com and look up at the, the menu at the top uh, for moneybomb, and you just go right there. So help us get a jump on things. And uh, we will have more info about this uh, on our social media pages in the, in the Facebook group and on here um, as we prepare for the money bomb. My guest today is Sheldon Richmond of the Libertarian Institute, has, who he has a really impressive libertarian resume over the last almost 50 years, I think. Uh, we only got into a little bit of that since we wanted to cover his new book that's published by the Libertarian Institute. It's called What Social Animals Owe to Each Other. But you should know that uh, he's the executive director of the Libertarian Institute, a senior fellow and chair of the trustees of the Center for a Stateless Society, a contributing editor at antiwar.com. He's the former senior editor at the Cato Institute and Institute for Humane Studies, former editor of the Freeman, published by, which is published by the FEE, Foundation for Economic Education. And Sheldon is also former vice president at the Future of Freedom Foundation over there with Jacob Hornberger. So I'm particularly to have uh, particularly happy 
to have Sheldon on today on Decentralized Revolution, uh, not just because of all the great work he's done uh, and his uh, really great new book that I've read, but uh, because of the part he played in my libertarian journey about 24 years ago. And you'll hear about that in this interview. All right, Sheldon Richmond, welcome to Decentralized Revolution. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you uh, for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, usually when I have people on, I ask them kind of a short version of how they became a libertarian. And before I ask you that, I have to uh, tell you that you're actually part of my story. Um, I came to uh, the Cato Institute as an intern in uh, the winter quarter of 1996. And I was kind of coming out of being a, you know, a Reagan conservative, you know, I was born in 75 and grew up and kind of liked all the freedom stuff that Reagan said and was gradually becoming more educated on things. And um, so I was at the Cato Institute for three months and you were there. That's when you were there. Yeah. And you were, if I recall correctly, I don't know if you remember this, but you did little seminars with us. There were 10 or 12 of us and you would occasionally yep. uh, for an hour or two uh, kind of go through some stuff and show us stuff to read and stuff. So that really solidified for me, my uh, full uh, evolution into a, a Rothbardian uh, libertarian. So I, I really appreciate you for that. Well, how nice. I was an uh, intern coordinator. One of my right. jobs at Cato, my title was senior editor and I, I did lots of different things. But one of the things I did from pretty early on when I got there in 91 was to be the intern coordinator. I was involved in selecting the interns. And then uh, I did those daily, um, I don't know if they were daily meetings, but we did pretty frequent readings. We have uh, meetings, we'd have a reading and then we would talk about the reading, Right. sometimes a classic essay or something in the libertarian uh, canon. And we had some great conversations. And then I think uh, maybe we gave you some op-ed writing assignments. I, there were things for you to do besides your, you got then assigned to one of the directors or. Yeah. Or, I and, actually, I actually ended up working with Stephen Moore, who's oh, yeah. kind of uh, gone off the reservation on some things the last few years. That's right. That's where I got to meet Stephen, Stephen Moore. He certainly knew the uh, federal budget very well. Yeah. And, and he was, and in those days he was a good free trader. He was. <laughs> And he was an, he was a, sort of a disciple of Julian Simon, who I am very fond yep. of. I, he's of course no longer with us. He's been gone for quite a while, Julian Simon. But he yeah he was he worked with Julian Simon, co-wrote stuff. Yeah, but he's in a whole other story, I guess. Yeah, he I just want to make sure uh, he was great to work for, and uh, I don't have anything bad to say about him personally. Yeah, no, very nice guy. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um. All right. So the reason I'm having you on is. Uh, you, you've written a lot over the years. Um, well, first, let, give me the short version of how you became a libertarian. Uh, I think my story is actually fairly standard for people my age. And by my age, I guess I should tell you what that is and your uh, viewers. Uh, I was born very late, the last few days, day after Christmas, as a matter of fact, of 1949, okay? The Truman, the Truman administration. <laughs> yeah, I was born on the 29th of December in the Ford administration. Okay, so, so we, uh, yeah, we, have some we almost coming. share a birthday. I, I missed Christmas by 53 minutes, uh, which, since my family was Jewish, didn't really have uh, <laughs> a right. big impact. Uh, but anyway, I'll skip that part because I didn't become a libertarian on that day, unfortunately. Uh, my political awakening, again, uh, similar to many people my age who were born, uh, you know, 48, 49, 50, 51 in that era, was the was the, the Gold War campaign. Right. 1964. So we were coming of age. We were beginning to be aware of the outer world. And uh, I had an older brother who was at college and was a Goldwater enthusiast. And so, you know, I'd be asking him, who's this guy? What's this about? I hadn't thought about politics very much. I remember being, quote, for Nixon in 1960 because my parents were Republicans. Right. Uh, Jewish, Jewish Republicans in a heavily Jewish Democratic neighborhood. Most okay. In Philadelphia, Philadelphia, by the way. In right. Philadelphia, uh, yeah, mo most Jewish people were not Republicans. Right. They were moderate conservative uh, Republicans. <clears throat> and so uh, my brother was, uh, oh, sending me some of the campaign literature, and I came across the uh, – I uh, heard of Conscious of Conservative. I found that book. It was hard to find, but I found it. Actually, found it at a John Birch Society bookstore. Okay. And when I say bookstore, it was a wall at the back of a shoe repair shop. Joe oh, wow. Shoe, Joe Shoe Repair is what it was called. And that guy was 
tied in with the birth society, which I didn't I didn't even know what that was. But he had a wall in the back with books. And that's the I don't know why I knew to go there. Someone from school must have directed me. Um, and, you know, it wasn't a seedy place or anything. <laughs> that's the only place I could find the conscience of conservative in paperback. And so I read it and I like the freedom talk, just like you said about Reagan, probably very similar. I didn't know anything about foreign policy or Cold War. You know, I, you know, heard about it and was aware of such a thing, but I hadn't ever had studied it. You know, I was like 14 years old. So I was not uh, put off by the stuff he had to say about foreign policy. It made it seem like, you know, this is a matter of our safety. There's a real threat and, you know, stuff like that. But and what to appealed clear, to me... To be clear, he was a, a hawk, right? He I was mean, a hawk. Yeah. He was very hawkish. He was more in the rollback, not containment. Right. You know, the, uh, the containment on one side, which was... That was the mainstream, right? You didn't have, uh, you know, the Rothbardians in the mainstream. You had right. you had the moderates were containment. Let's make sure the Soviets don't move any further west in Europe. And then you had the rollback people, National Review and other types that actually wanted to go in and yeah, roll them right. back, put them where they came, whence they came. Uh, but appeal, what appealed to me was the freedom talk, and there was a lot of freedom talk in. In Goldwater stuff, uh, he had Carl Hess as a speechwriter. Now, Carl Hess was not a full-blown libertarian. He was—he called himself a conservative then, but I guess he—you know—he must have had libertarian leanings. Later on, he'd become a colleague of Rothbard's and an outright uh, anarcho-libertarian. But um, so he was writing speeches, and others were writing speeches who today we might even consider neoconservatives, Harry Jaffa and other people. But there was definitely a pro-freedom idea there. And I had already come in contact with stories, fictional and otherwise, with the, about the American Revolution. And I liked this idea. Wow, fighting for individual freedom. That appealed to me, even to the point where I didn't like the idea of censorship. I mean, I, even at that early age, I thought, no, that's, that's not that's not right either. People ought to be able to say what they want and publish what they want. So I, I was already inclined to individual liberty. So I was receptive to that part of Goldwater's message. But then at school... You know, this would have been uh, late, uh, late junior high school, early high school. I was running into other kids who were a little more advanced in the reading who were interested in Goldwater. And they said, you know, if you like that stuff, you need to read Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. Oh, wow. And then they said, you also need to write to the Foundation for Economic Education. And they don't charge. Get on their mailing list. In fact, they'll you'll be on their mailing list forever. Yep. And you'll get a monthly little magazine. It was like this big. Uh, called the Freeman. So start reading that. Uh, I'll jump ahead. You you edited for fifteen you years. Editor. Yeah, I edited the Freeman from right. uh, nineteen ninety seven roughly to twenty twelve or whatever the the math comes out to. Right. Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? Yeah. Right. I mean, it was it became a very different Freeman, but yeah. Uh, so I started reading that stuff, and then you come across names Mises and uh, Hayek, and someone else said. Uh, you need to read uh, Atlas Shrugged. Inevitably, you're going to run into somebody in high school. If you're already expressing these ideas, they'll say, well, you got to read Atlas Shrugged. So I think I read The Fountainhead first, and I really liked The Fountainhead, which was really not political. I mean, there's a bit of politics in there, but it's mostly the individual psychological and individual kind of level, life level, about the guy that wants to set his own standards and remain true to them, even though a whole lot of non-governmental pressures are on him to change, to conform. Right. So I was very, that that tied right in with the kind of stuff I liked. I mean, I wasn't a non-conformist in the sense that I rejected regular clothes and wanted to wear wacky clothes. It wasn't an outward thing. It was an idea of integrity and kind of thinking for yourself. I mean, I'm not sure I articulated it that way, but that's what I did. So you can see where that leads. You just start reading more and more people. You come across Rothbard and as they say, the rest is history. And then I learned the word libertarian. At first, I didn't know that word. Rand didn't, Rand didn't use it, of course. He didn't like the word libertarian and condemned the libertarian movement, actually, as what hippies of the right or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so I was a, I thought of myself as a conservative until I knew better, probably with Rothbard. I was involved in YAF, the Young Americans for Freedom, and the big cataclysmic uh, 1969 National Convention where the libertarians got their, you know, butts kicked <laughs> and insulted and all kinds of stuff. And Rothbard was saying, hey, libertarians, get out of Yaff. Don't be Yaff. Yaff is William F. Buckley and all that bad stuff, Cold War. And and so I was then 
totally, you know, taken in. <laughs> you were on your <laughs> by, way by then. By the libertarian movement, the real libertarian movement, yeah. Right. And I got to know a lot of these people personally, Carl Hess, Rothbard. I never met Rand. I saw her speak once live at uh, Massachusetts, but I, I didn't ever meet her. But I met, I used to, I started going to conferences in 69, 70, 71 in Philadelphia and New York, meeting all these great people, Mario Rizzo, uh, Ralph Rako, all, all this, all, Leonard Ligio. You know, I could name names all day, but you don't want to hear that. <laughs> what about uh, Mises? Did you ever see him? I One and only time that I see Mises it was very late in his life. It was 1970. He died in 73. He really right. wasn't. He was kind of frail. He'd been brought down from New York to Philadelphia to speak at a conference that was put on by the old Society for Individual Liberty, which later became the International Society for Individual yeah. Liberty when it merged with the Libertarian International later on. But when we when the Libertarians broke away from YAF, and I was part of this group because it was centered in Philadelphia where I was, I went to college at Temple University, so that's in Philly. Uh, SIL formed there. And these were the ex-YAF people who were convinced by Rothbard's argument that there's no future in YAF. So they were holding great conferences where I met all kinds of people, Tibor McCann, Eric Mack, I mean, names that are still big. Uh, Tibor passed away, but uh, names that are still big today and, and prominent in the literature. They brought Mises down and uh, he was supposed to speak at a certain time, but the scheduling got screwed up. And he had, they made, they sat him in a, with, and his wife, Margaret, they sat him in a, you know, kind of a couch out in, in the student, it was in a building, it was a university, it was a Penn, uh, University of Pennsylvania, while the, the, the uh, speech before him kept going because we, they were off schedule for some reason. I forget right. the reason. So they had him there and they gave him some tea and they were trying to make him comfortable, but it wasn't great. Guess who he had to wait for? It was David Friedman. Oh. Milton Friedman's son, who right. you know, I also got to know. So Mises was not happy that he was being made to wait for a Friedman. Right. Because <laughs> there was some tension, obviously, between right. the two of them. And he never ended up speaking. However, while he was waiting, a whole group of us were sitting on the floor at his feet. Yeah. And he was talking about the dangers of inflation. So that's my one and only time that I saw Mises. And at least he's got this, if it even though it was informal, he got to, I got to hear him talk. Yeah, and liter literally sit at his feet and learn. Uh, I actually did. Was literally sitting at his feet. I yeah, met Hayek later at Cato. That's great, and and that's a great transition into um, uh, the the proximate reason I'm having you on is is uh, your your new book. It's called "What Social Animals Owe to Each Other." Can and I show uh, the cover. Yeah, please do <laughs> put put it right in the middle there. Yeah. Um, I've read it. It just came out. Getting a glare. There you go. Um, I think is it on Amazon and all that? Amazon and Kindle, paperback and uh, and Amazon and Kindle. All right, and oh, then sorry, uh, Kindle and Amazon. And it's a publication of the Libertarian Institute, which right. you founded along with uh, Scott Horton and the late great Will Grigg. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, so we'll we won't have time to go into. Um, there's a lot of things I want to go into, but I want to yeah. focus on the book first. And yeah. and you mentioned Mises and Hayek. They come up a lot uh, in the book. Why, <laughs> why, why, why do they? And uh, what did uh, what ideas of theirs? Yeah. Uh, oh, one more thing about the book. The book is about a it's seventy some articles that you've written, but they're short. They're short articles, right? They're Nothing's short. longer than say two thousand words, and they're probably more like fifteen hundred, fifteen hundred words. Yeah, it's a reasonable sized book, but it, you definitely get your money's worth. There's a lot of different essays. And you can it. skip through it. You don't need to yep. read it from page one to the end. That's correct. You, you can jump around. So you mentioned Mises a lot in there. And yes. I think at one point you said that he thought about calling human action, was it social cooperation? Exactly. Why, why would he talk about that? There's something, I another thing I have in common with Mises. I mean, what I have in common with Mises is I like a whole lot of his ideas. But I could have called my book social cooperation. So right. there's something else I haven't come. Well, these are essays that date back uh, almost 20 years. And it was almost as if I sat down back then and decided, okay, I'm going to write a book, although I didn't think of that. But there's a theme that runs through those nearly 20 years. And I was that I was very conscious of. And you can see it come up in different ways in, in just a, you know probably every chapter. The importance of social cooperation to human flourishing and my influences, uh, aside from Mises and Hayek in economics and social science generally, I'm very much an, much an Aristotelian. I'm a, a Greek. 
I mean, I like Socrates and uh, and not Plato's Republic, but much of Plato's uh, moral moral views, and but especially Aristotle on the importance of that. We the fact is we are we are um, social animals, language using animals, reasoning animals, and that we flourish when we're interacting with other people on the basis of reason. So we have an interest, a very firm self-interest in having rational people around us uh, and relating to them rationally. We gain by that. And we gain by it not just that it's a bridge to our uh, well-being, it's it's constitutive of our well-being. It's like we can't conceive of our well-being without that. So that leads to the idea, well, what is social cooperation? So you. You find this in Mises and Hayek, and I, and I cite a lot of other people. I'll discuss Herbert Spencer and uh, oh, a whole bunch of people, right? Uh, Karl Menger, who, who was the founder of the Austrian school and uh, uh, not a direct teacher of Mises, but the teacher of Mises' teacher, Bob right. Bavar, stressing how you can look at society, again, for the sake of description, not taking it literally, almost as a living organism made up of individuals who are as if by an invisible hand, I'll use the Adam Smith phrase there, as if by an invisible hand, that's not to be, meant to be literal or mystical, but as if by an invisible hand, are cooperating on a grand scale, even though there's no obviously no central director. And, uh, and, and so social cooperation is a real thing. I mean, sometimes libertarians tend to over, I mean, I'm an individualist in a lot of ways, and I just, I have this, that's discussed in a few different chapters. But you can kind of overstate individualism to the point where we often get accused of being atomistic individuals, right. individualists. In other words, to us, the ideal person is like has no connections with other people. Right. <laughs> it's sort of like Ted Kaczynski without the letter bombs, right? <laughs> living, living yeah. in a uh, off the grid in a shack somewhere in Montana, wherever he was, uh, never having any contact with people. That's how can that be a libertarian ideal? It's ridiculous. Right. I mean, we, we praise the division of labor like all the time. Yeah. Well, guess what? Ted Kaczynski has no part in the division of labor. He makes right. everything I assume now. Well, he's in jail, but before that, he made everything I guess he consumed or used. And so social cooperation is, cooperation is extremely important and totally consistent with individualism. And there's a great line, which I can't quote uh, because I, I don't remember it exactly, by Spencer, and it's in one of the chapters, about how it seems paradoxical, but as we become more and more individuated with progress, we also become more and more cooperative with each other. Yep. He, he says those seem to be in opposition. Guess what? They're not in opposition. So that's what I'm trying to uh, push. And it, it occurred to me, since I knew that Mises was, uh, I, I read somewhere that Mises was wanted to call human action originally, uh, human, uh, sorry, uh, social cooperation. I took a stab and thought, I'll bet you that social cooperation is the second most used phrase in in that book. It's a 700, 800 word book, right? A page book. Uh, and I said, okay, what would be number one? I decided division of labor. Now, that could have been close because private property has got to be up there, right? He certainly talks a lot about private property. Anyway, someone ran the book through one of those programs that counts phrases, and I, and I was right. Division of labor first, social cooperation second. I, he didn't say what was third, but I'm going to guess it was a, a private property. So that's – I've been interested in social cooperation ever since, and I've picked up so much from the Austrians. Uh, it's certainly very important at Hayek when he discusses the price system, Mises too, but they have – you know – a lot of people like to oppose Hayek and Mises as if they're sort of fundamentally different. I don't, I never bought that. I'm more a Betke, Betke type who thinks you need to read Hayek as a Misesian and Mises as a Hayekian. I think they're, they're more complementary. And I, I've gotten so much from both of those, those guys that, um, you know, my debt is uh, unlimited, infinite. Let me ask you, um, uh, that's why I, I'm really glad that, um, uh, social co cooperation is the theme of this book because, you know, I, I've heard all those same arguments too through college and everything that um, uh, you guys are. Uh, I had a college professor, you know, laugh me off and say that she used the word atomistic, you know, uh, the same way. Um, and also, you hear a lot and you hear it every day today from the Bernie Sanders type people that the, yep. the free market is not about cooperation. It's about exploitation. <laughs> There's cutthroat competition. 
you know, they use these doggy dog, the, all these little loaded terms to, yep. to make us think of the, um, uh, the free market as like this jungle where it's every man for himself, yeah. but that's not what it is at all. Uh, right. Right. And, and one of the ways I, uh, point this out is, uh, is to t look at the two concepts, which for a lot of people are, uh, com are competing concepts, cooperation on the one hand and competition on the other hand. Now cooperation sounds all fuzzy and warm, right? Well, we all like who's against cooperation. Everybody loves cooperation. Well, except for the couple of people living off the grid and, you know, alone in a shack. But most people will say, yeah, cooperation is great. And then others will put up as the polar opposite competition. And, and, and I it's almost an aesthetic thing. And I'll have a chapter about it called, I think it's called The Market is a, is a Beautiful Thing. Yep. And what stimulated that the chapter was, in, in listening to people ask me questions when I lecture, I, and I sometimes had the feeling from some people on the left, and I should say the status left because there is a libertarian left, but on the status left, their objection to markets and competition is almost an aesthetic objection. Yeah, It's not that there's so much they have a moral theory against it or economic theory or or a historical view. It's, it's, it, to them, it's ugly. Competition and profit and uh, you know self-interest uh, is, is just revolting to them at an aesthetic level. So what I pointed out, and this was an essay from yeah, a long time ago, I wanted to argue that competition and cooperation are really two sides of the same coin for this, you know, for this reason. If you're free to, to, to choose with whom you're going to cooperate, then you're going to get cooperation. I mean, you're going to get competition. If I walk into a shopping mall and I need, I need shoes and there are three shoe sellers there, uh, I have to think about what I have to think about with whom am I going to cooperate in my quest for shoes? And I'll look at what their offerings are, what the prices are, what I think the quality is, et cetera. So that's my relationship potentially, right? I'm a potential competitor, uh, sorry, potential cooperator with A, B, and C, and A, B, and C are potential cooperators with me. But what describes the relationship among A, B, and C? They're competitors. Yep. And that grows entirely out of my freedom to decide with whom to cooperate. Yep. So they, they go together. You can't say, I'll, I like competition. I like uh, cooperation. Let's get rid of competition. That means I wouldn't be free to decide with whom to cooperate. What kind of cooperation is that when I don't get to decide who I want to cooperate with? Yep. It doesn't make it. It's not, so I don't think these, these left, I'm left people I'm talking about ever think about that. And that's one message I've tried to bring. And I know it's repeated a couple of times in the book. Sure. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, I actually pulled out a quote from um, the market is a beautiful thing. One of the articles. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, Cause I, I, I thought it was particularly well uh, stated. Um, it, the market is beautiful, not because it lives up to some mathematically elegant equi equilibrium model, but because it does not. And, <laughs> and, and I, I think that's great because, you know, another thing we hear from critics of the market um, even moderates and, and other, uh, maybe people who are on the right a little bit who look at things through a, a Keynesian lens, they look at it as yeah. they do a lot of physics and math is what inspires their economics. Mm -hmm. So what, what's explaining the difference, uh, why that's not necessarily the best way to look at economics? Sure. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know what the state of economics departments uh, are these days. It's a long time since I took college economics. I only took one semester and we used Samuelson. It was a pure Keynesian yeah. course. Uh, I know there are some Austrian oriented uh, departments around the country, but I have a feeling they haven't swept the field yet and they yeah. uh, dominate everything. So, so I'm sure students are, are being taught about the notion of pure and perfect competition, which is based in, in the mathematical approach to economics where they, they use math to build models of the perfect, the perfect competitive uh, economy, and it includes you know crazy assumptions like perfect knowledge, right? Perfect knowledge about resources, about demand, right. everything. Perfect, perfect knowledge. I mean, it's it's crazy. Why would you think that would be useful even for the sake of argument? I have no idea. But anyway, that so perfect equilibrium, right? Perfect. Everything's in perfect balance, and they study that. They don't study how you might get there. Right, which is more of an Austrian approach. You may say, uh, okay, we, we can never get there, but at least we could study equilibrating 
you know, factors or forces. Uh, so they have this model that, you know, if we could reach that model, if we could actually live that model, have that model in reality, that'd be great. Well, it wouldn't be great because there'd be no change, right? But, it, uh, and no innovation or anything, no entrepreneurship, no one thinking up new things. But they, but that's the impression. If only we could have that, yeah, markets would be wonderful. Okay, so that was wrong. But then they go on to say, but of course we can't have that. So therefore we need all kinds of government intervention. We need anti-monopoly laws and we need minimum wage and, you know, name it. Uh, all kinds of the, all the regulations you get from the alphabet agencies uh, coming out of Washington, D.C. and a bunch of them at the state levels as well. Licensing. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that prejudices people against markets. I mean, they, they may say it's nice in theory, yeah. but, it's, but it's not in practice. And, and so what I tried to do in that chapter, when I, especially with that, with regard to that quote you just read, which uh, I have to say, hearing it read, sound pretty nice. It's good. <laughs> uh, the beauty of the market is, is not that it lives up to a model, but that, it, but that, but that it, there are always, imper, quote, imperfections. By, and by imperfections, I'm using a, sort of an Austrian sense here, namely that lots of consumers would really like it if things were somewhat different from what they are. In other words, resources that are being used to make a, a us, we consumers might like it if some of those resources were, were switched over and we're making B, which we're having to do without because uh, too, maybe too, you know, too, many, too much of A is being made. I mean, at any given time, given the imperfection of knowledge, incompleteness of knowledge, because knowledge is scattered, this is kind of a high point, high stresses. Knowledge is scattered. It doesn't exist in one place. And a lot of knowledge is not data, right? It's it's uh, it's what the philosopher Gilbert Ryle called um, knowing how, not knowing that. A lot of things we do on the basis of things that we implicitly know that you couldn't write out for somebody, right? All the Think of all the rules you follow. So many of them are just things you've adopted growing up, part of growing up. You couldn't, like the rules of grammar, you couldn't, you could be speaking beautiful language, but not you couldn't tell everybody the rules you're following. So the the uh, the, the point about uh, the real world markets is that with the means that these imperfections are discovered and then corrected, that's what entrepreneurship does, right? An entrepreneur can have a hunch, who knows what it is. It's not mystical, but he has an intuition, he has a sense that, you know what, I think resources are, are not being... Uh, Put to their best use in the sense of what consumers most want. You have a hunch. So I'm going to go out and buy some of those resources from the current users, the current producers, and also hire labor that maybe are working for other people making other things, and take that bundle of labor and resources, which in this form as just a bundle are no, of no good, no use to consumers, right? If I want a car, I don't want a pile of, uh, of steel, rubber, glass, and a couple of guys standing around who are workers that that doesn't that's not a car to me it's a potential car it's a future right. car perhaps so that's production is transformation right it doesn't it's not production and nothing so the entrepreneur says hey if i if i uh, uh, buy up these resorts and i have to buy them because i have to get them somehow uh again stuff i could some stuff i could dig up on my own property let's say but that's not the most of the stuff if i can then devote it to this other thing that no one else thought of if i'm right i'm going to make some big profits because I thought of this and no one else has. And so if it's a hit, of course, I can always lose. I could be wrong. I could have made a mistake. Maybe too few people want it. Maybe maybe people don't want to pay a price higher than I had to pay per unit for all the stuff I bought, in which case I'm out of business. I'm bankrupt. But on the other hand, if, I'm, if I was right about consumers for some unexplained reason or just I'm good at hunches, um, I'm gonna, they're going to pay me more than – I paid per unit for all those resources and the labor services that I've hired. And I, that means I have, I get entre, entrepreneurial profit. And that's a reward for being, having the insight, the foresight, which is a incentive for other people to try to do the same thing. But the, the important thing, to, so that's the beauty of the market. And if, you know, and, and also I quote Adam Smith on this because I think his passages are so lovely. I know I went actually kind of long in quoting, in quoting Smith, but he talks about what happens when there's too much of a product on the market, too much, again, relative to what people want. It's not any kind of intrinsic uh, uh, quantity. It's what people want. If there's too much, he explains step by step. 
how that gets changed, how producers, because of the feedback they're getting from in, the, in profit and price in the price system, will shift resources to something else and vice versa. If there's too little, the price is going to rise and that presents incentives for people to uh, take resources from some other area and bring it to this area. To, uh, but again, that tends to then normalize profits, right? Profits, right. the high profits then come down from because of the entrepreneurial reaction. And so profits don't last. Entrepreneurial profit does not last. Even if you score really high profits, it's not going to last because you're going to attract other competitors. There's nothing, the best way to attract competitors is to have very high profits. Yep. I think people, people don't understand that generally. People that don't really understand economics think, you know, a monopolist has high, a monopolist that's not as a result of government privilege, but just a sole seller right. at some period of time. The way to keep your monopoly is to have high profits. That's ridiculous. Yeah. That's like getting on your roof with a with a big bullhorn saying, hey, folks, if you want to make big bucks, come into this industry. If you want to keep competitors out, keep your profits like razor thin. Yeah, That'll keep competitors out. But on the other hand, you're not getting big profits. <laughs> yeah. One, uh, there's a phrase that you use in, uh, there's a couple other uh, essays, loving economics or chapters Yeah. and love the market. And it was either in one of those two or the market is a beautiful thing. Uh, and this, uh, <laughs> this little idea has implications beyond uh, economics. Um, and I thought it was just an interesting concept that I wanted to ask you about. And I don't know if this is a direct quote, but uh, my note is, uh, that you say property makes autonomy possible. What, what do yeah. you mean by that? Well, you know, lots of people value left, right, wherever you want to put them. It, uh, it's kind of non-ideological, at least in the U.S. context and the West generally, value this idea of individual autonomy. You know, there have been, been a lot of socialist types. I mean, state socialists, uh, I think of Oscar Wilde and the, uh, and um, Emma Goldman, who was an anarchist, but a communist anarchist, they were individualists. Yep. They thought that the value of, of that such a system was if you could, if you can do away with uh, the day-to-day -day economic cares that people have in earning a living, they're liberated. The individual's liberated. Not that they just become a cog in the big blob or you know collective, uh, uh, the collective. I mean, there's some there's some socialist types who think who sound like that's what they mean. But but there's a this there's a strong strain among uh, among the left that it would lead to autonomy. In other words, being able to govern your life and chart your destiny and kind of do what you want to do. And there, you know, there's a surface logic to that. If I don't have to worry about paying bills, then gosh, I can go out and try different things. If I fail, I'll try something else. So we like autonomy. Getting to decide what you want to do in life, what you want to be. Uh, so it seems to me, if you think about what, what is required for that, here, here is a break with the kind of leftists I was talking about. It seems to me the idea of private property is going to arise in your thinking pretty early. I mean, don't you need to be able to have a, pl a place to live that's yours, that somebody just can't walk into or kick you out of right. and, and control uh, your, uh, you know, your laptop or your car? I mean, how, do you, how can you chart a life plan if all of that stuff would be subject to someone else's control, either democratic control or authoritarian control, dictatorship control. I don't see how you can separate property from autonomy. It's really, I think, a simple idea. Yeah, it is. Um, and uh, why, let me ask you this, because I've had this discussion with a couple of socialists or Marxists, yep. um, you know, that somehow property is uh, inherently exploitative um, and, and the property in the market and things like that. Why is it not inherently so? Well, if, uh, if, if you're the first user of uh, a plot of land and you know, you can get into historical controversies about uh, you know, has an old land been stolen from somebody at one time or another, uh, you know, which is true, but you know, you want to go back 2000 years and like right every wrong that that would be chaos. You know, that's a whole other subject. Uh, but, but it certainly is a theoretical matter. If someone uh, is the first to clear a plot of land and, you know, uh, make it ready, uh, uh, appropriate for agriculture and then uh, does the plowing and the planting and the harvesting, 
is well i don't see how that could not be that why that should not be regarded as that person's uh land and and crop and crops uh he's mixed his labor with it to use uh, to use uh, sorry uh, john locke's uh, famous phrase uh the alternatives all seem to involve injustice uh, if you if you if you then say uh, no, those aren't your crops. You know, we're going to take some from you. Uh, I don't see how that's a superior claim to to what this person did. Uh, so that's and then if you acquire things through exchange, which is you know what happens after an uh, uh, original appropriation uh, of things from nature, unowned things from nature, uh, then it seems perfectly clear cut, right? If uh, uh, you you traded money for my book. Uh, I, I own the book. I produced the book. It's, it seems pretty clear cut that, uh, that I own it and you have the money from your working or get, you know, somebody gave you a gift, but through some voluntary method. So it's clearly you own those uh, dollars. Um, how can, uh, and we exchange them on term both, neither of us has a gun to our heads. We, we, uh, we, uh, chain, we exchange the money for, uh, for a book, uh, if you had clear title and I had clear title and we exchange, in effect, we've exclaimed, exchanged clear titles, where's the problem? Yep. The, now I own the money and you own the book. I mean, this is, uh, again, it's not, it's really not, this is not rocket science. People yep. try to make it very complicated and they want to drag in a lot of uh, often extraneous considerations to undermine that. But how would you live otherwise? Rothbard goes through this in the ethics of liberty. I mean, what's, and also, yeah, the ethics of liberty and, you know, how, What's a, what would be a, 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 a another arrangement that would be more conducive to human flourishing, where we vote on everything that anybody wants to do? You know, everybody is kind of owned by everybody. We each own a tiny share of every other person, and then in turn, everybody owns a share of me. And so, before I can make a decision about what I want to do in life, we have to sit down and vote. That's crazy. That sounds like a, a recipe for starvation and extinction. On the other hand, do we want a, a dictatorship? Uh, or, and, and do we want anything in between, a representative government that's going to, you know, tell me how I can live my life? It doesn't never make sense. Self-ownership, which includes your honestly acquired possessions, is the only thing that's going to be conducive to maximum human flourishing. Yep. I haven't seen anybody answer that. Um you have another chapter uh, that I really liked and it's a, it's a, um, it's an idea that I've kind of become familiar with over the last few years, uh, I think, um, is, uh, and it's called class struggle rightly conceived. Yeah. So how do libertarians, how should libertarians look at class versus yeah. the traditional Marxist or other, uh, uh, conception of that? Right. Mary Rothbard used to write about this. So, uh, you know, much of what I think on this, I, if I first think about this, I first learned from him. And uh, one of the things we learn when you read about class struggle, class conflict uh, from a libertarian perspective is that Marx did not invent class struggle. It's it, people, if they know anything, will associate that with Marx. So if you talk about class and class conflict, they're going to assume you're Marxist. Right. Uh, the funny thing is, if you, and I probably have the quote in the chapter, or there's a second chapter also on the class in there that uh, may have the quote. Uh, Marx, tri uh, Marx credits the idea to the uh, liberal economists and historians of uh, early 19th century France, who were, when I say liberal, I mean libertarian. In those days, liberal meant very much what we mean by libertarian. Might have been, might not have been fully formed, you know, as a philosophy, but it was darn close. And they were the first to talk about class conflict. And the way they talked about it was that as soon as you have the state taxing people, you're going to get a division between those who pay taxes and those who consume taxes. So the taxpayers and the tax consumers are what were sometimes called the tax eaters. Yep. Uh, and so that's not necessarily the state. It can be people in the in the so-called private sector who just have very close relations the people in the state. Like the Elon, Elon Musk is a good example. Yeah, the privileged class, right. The, the pri privileged few who have an inroad to political connections that most of us can't have, never will have, and maybe don't even want to have. Um, so you get classes, a class division, naturally, as soon as the state is taxing, as soon as you have a state, and when you have a state and taxes go together, you can't separate them logically. I don't know what a tax, taxless 
government would be. There are some advocates. Rand was an advocate of monopoly government that didn't tax, and I can name a few other people, uh, but I don't think that makes any sense. Uh, so Marx then screwed it up because the, the, the liberal economists were also called industrialization uh, industrialists because they were advocates of industrialization through markets. They put the entrepreneur and the owners of producer goods, machines, right, tools, they put them in the industrious class rather than in the, you know, the parasite, parasitic class. So workers, they regarded the entrepreneur and the owners of the tools and machines as, as workers, basically. That was in one, one side. Uh, and then the other side, you had the parasitic types, the tax collectors, and then the people that got the tax money. Uh, Marx screws that up because Marx puts the owners of, of capital, capital in the sense of of cash, an asset that's in the cash form rather than machines, but also the owners, the owners are, uh, the, let's say the means of production, which was his term and as the more gen most general term. He put them not in the, the worker class, in the industrious class, but in the, uh, the parasitic uh, class. So he messes it up. Uh, Thomas Hodgkin, who was a great libertarian of, uh, you know, early, uh, early to mid 19th century, uh, talks about how important, and Bastiat got this too, Frederick Bastiat, the French liberal, uh, around the same period, talked about the importance of the, the entrepreneur, the enterpriser, right? The person that takes risks and puts together an enterprise by, by buying resources and hiring labor. Uh, he's, a, he's a worker. And part of his return is actually wage. His return is not all pure profit. Uh, some of it is interest, and some of it is also uh, return on his his effort. Because th look, thinking up an enterprise and putting it in place—that's effort. I mean, he mental. As Hodgkin say, said, mental labor is also labor. It doesn't have to just be with your hands. And even with your hands, there's always mental labor going on at the same time. We never purely work, work with our hands. Of course, we're human beings and we're conscious. So that's that's the interest that libertarians have had in class conflict. Great. Um, one more question about uh, what so what do social animals owe to each other? And uh, that's there was a couple chapters. One called "Real Liberalism and the Law of Nature." Another one called "I Love This Title uh, because I use this phrase a lot: uh, the myth of a nation of laws." And you talk about the difference between natural law and legislation and crimes versus torts uh, in I yeah. think, those two essays. The first one you mentioned is, is, is one of the two about Hodgkin, yeah. Thomas Hodgkin, who I mentioned, who will sound like a leftist. Uh, Murray Rothbard talks about him in his, uh, his uh, one of the volumes of his History of Economic Thought. Uh, oddly, Hodgkin is regarded as, will be called a Ricardian socialist, hmm. which is strange, because number one, he wasn't a Ricardian. Uh, he, he was much more a Smithian, and there's, there are big differences between Ricardian and, and uh, Ricardo, who followed Smith and Smith. Uh, they have some common elements, but but there's some important differences. And um, he um, he also distinguished artificial property from natural property. He's got a he's got a book called uh, some, I like the distinction between artificial property and natural property, which I uh, talk about and quote in there. And artificial he means again privilege, so it's the class thing. But natural is what comes through voluntary, you know, non-coercive efforts among, among people. And so, uh, you know, he's not a socialist in the sense of a state socialist. Uh, I, I don't, now, he was one of the first people, maybe the first person to use the word capitalist in a disparaging way. Marx, you know, Marx is usually considered to be the one who coined the term capitalism uh, in a disparaging way. And he, but, and he might've used capitalism, but, but Hodgkin used capitalist. And by that, he meant an owner of capital who, who was a part of the privileged class. Yeah. And that was often how it was thought of in, back in those days, which is why you have today a group of us who call ourselves free market anti-capitalists. Right. <laughs> and I've contributed to a volume that, that has a lot of essays, both new and, and, uh, and uh, classic, called free market anti-capitalism. And I, I discuss that in the book. There are a couple chapters. There's even a chapter called, I think with a question mark, free market socialism. Right. And I, so I do discuss those. Now, what was the second half of your that question? Um, that was about, the, um, the concepts of like natural law versus legislation, oh, crimes right. versus torts. 
Right. And again, 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 I learned very much from the great Italian uh, classical liberal uh, died many years ago, Bruno Leone, yep. in a great book called Freedom and the Law, which you can find. Uh, and also a contemporary uh, political philosopher, law, law scholar, John Hasness and other people who distinguish uh, rights and natural law from, and Hayek does this in law, legislation, liberty. The legislation is not the same as law. People tend to think it is, but there was always law even before there were legislatures. And I don't, by that, I don't mean top down uh, decrees from the state, whether it's a king or a legislature. I mean law that is bottom up, bubbles up, and emer it's called emergent, right? It's emer emerges. Um, after all, you know, the word society has a lot of, uh, it's not just a group of people, uh, because we would distinguish a mob from society. Society has a lot of uh, elements in it that suggest order and regularity. So what does that mean? It means people observing rules. And even in, you can find episodes in history which were essentially stateless, and Hostness talks about that in the and I discussed one of his papers in a chapter, I forget the name of the chapter, but his paper is called Toward a Theory of Empirical Natural Rights, right. which is interesting because most people don't think natural rights are an empirical thing. But he looks at two episodes of history that were essentially stateless to see what kind of rules emerged. And he finds very libertarian-ish rules about property and the right to life, self-ownership. Yeah. Uh, not perfect, not what Rothbard would have laid out, you know, laid out in a book. But when you, when people are free to deal with each other, they, they, most of them realize violence is not a good route, right? First of all, extreme danger to yourself, but it's also costly. It uses up resources. Well, I want to have a good life. And then, uh, and Mises of course wrote about this too. I want to, I want the division of labor. I'm going to, I'm going to learn early on that there are gains from trade. You know, my famous, my favorite line in, in, in Mises is, uh, it's late in the book, like in the 700s, where he says something like, because other people want shoes like I do, doesn't make it harder for me to get shoes, but easier. Yeah. There's so much insight in that one sentence. Now, yeah. you need, it's also you should read the check, the paragraphs on either side of that because it's great stuff. But the point is, division of labor brings down the cost of stuff. You get economies of scale. And so violence is not really a good way to flourish. I mean, people discover this kind of early on. Now, it doesn't mean everybody does. They're going to have sociopathic types or people that uh, have a short time uh, horizon and, and want to grab something from somebody rather than work for it. But that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about, that, that by... by uh, Law rather than than uh, not, than uh, legislation. Law is is what emerges in 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 the actual behavior of people, even if it's never written down anywhere. Remember, I talked about people observing rules yep. that they couldn't even specify. I mean, think of all the etiquette and customs we follow, and like the rules of grammar, we could never even write them out. We're in a way, in a sense, we don't know them. Right. We know them. We know how to do something, but we don't know, you know, that. In a way, we're you know, but we don't need to be know everything. I mean, our time is limited, right? So, you got to economize on your time and energy. So that's what I mean by that. Speaking of our time being limited, uh, yes, just don't have much time left. But I'd like to ask one more question, if that's yeah. okay. Oh yeah. And, and we don't have time to go into uh, your previous book, which is called "Coming to Palestine," but it's similar. It's a, a bunch of essays over uh, quite a long period of time that you've written yeah. about the Israel-Palestine mm -hmm. thing. Uh, Here's my question. Uh, you know, I, I came to things kind of from the right and from a conservative Christian background. Um, also, like Randian libertarians will sometimes be very anti-Palestinian and all this. And there's been so much disinformation about yep. uh, the state of Israel and, and what's going on, what's gone on over there for the last hundred years plus. Um, what for a libertarian who hasn't looked at this and has maybe just imbibed what, you know, he's heard from the other uh, mainstream sources. Um, how should he start to think about this issue and where would you, uh, what resources would you direct him to? Well, there's a softball question because I could, I think that could start with my book, which is a, uh, elementary in a sense, right? It doesn't assume any information and it's just trying to explain it to the very person you just described. I hardly know anything about this. I, you know, I hear stuff in the news, 
uh, here. It's an ancient fight. I'm, I'm glad that you said 100 years or more or a little more a little because bit. it's not ancient. Right. It really goes back to like the late 19th century. It's not that old. Uh, and it's not essentially religious. It's not, no, it's not. I would say it's not religious. Yeah. Um, so just a self-promotion, but I think it also is a good answer. I, I would start with my book. Um, it's a property rights question. Uh, you had in 1947, or you can go back again, you can go back to 1896 when the Zionist movement gets started. Palestine is populated, but the but the Zionists you, you coined the phrase, which then quickly became famous, uh, a land without a people for a people without a land. So you know, Seth Rogen I quoted the other day on a podcast with the comedian uh, Mark Marin saying. We, you know, and he had a Jewish upbringing. I'll take it, he's secular and an atheist. Uh, he said, I was fed lies growing up. It wasn't a land without a people. It wasn't just a vacant place with the door, with the door open. And so he was right. He was right about that. And it was a, it was a rude awakening because I, I grew up, again, with a Jewish education, uh, moderate conservative Judaism, not, not extreme reform or very or, uh, or extreme orthodox or very reform but kind of that middle ground uh, and that's what I learned so only later in the 70s and 80s did I learn that there were a lot of people there and that people were thrown off land even when land was purchased although dubiously from absentee feudal landlords the people that had been working there and their families working there for generations for a thousand years or more got kicked off because they weren't Jewish they were Arab and Muslim or uh, Christian. A lot of there are Christian yep. Arabs, um, and so it, the libertarian should be receptive to this because it was kicking people off land. So it's and you can't say yeah, but, but my people were there two thousand years ago. What if every quote people and, and it's all a subject to get into whether there was a single people. That's a whole other right. thing, and I discuss that in my book. So if people are curious, they can read that part of it too. But let's assume that's fine. That, yeah, there's an actual people. What if every people said, you know what, we want our land that the, the land that our that our ancestors lived on two thousand years ago or more? And why stop at two thousand? Why couldn't it be three, four, five thousand years ago? I mean, people have moved all over the place. There's been conquest throughout history. Um, how are we supposed to be living if we're going to quote rectify all this? It would be chaos. It would be terrible. Only nihilists would benefit from such a thing. So uh, there's the starting point. Right. Uh, yeah. Maybe one, uh, uh, at another time I'll have you on if you, if you'd be open Please. to that. To talk oh yeah, about that. absolutely. Okay. We'll do that. Maybe if, uh, if, uh, if it comes back up in the, in the news, uh, if coronavirus ever ends and we, and we, and we remember that there are things outside the United States, um, sure. uh, besides the, the Chinese flu as, uh, uh <laughs> Trump calls it, um, the, uh, uh, uh what do social animals owe to each other and coming to Palestine, both publications of the Libertarian Institute, you write there regularly, tell people where they can interact with you and your stuff. Uh, libertarianinstitute.org uh, website with new, new, new things and also reposted things uh, every day. And, uh, and I blog there and, uh, and then uh, occasionally I used to do weekly, but it's, it's a little less frequent now, uh, full-blown articles of, you know, not more than 2,000 words. I don't write long, real long things because uh, I want to be accessible. I really want to reach reach people who don't have time. People's time is limited and they have more to do in life than read. They're not all like us, you know, sitting around right. <laughs> reading and, and arguing. Uh, so they can find me there. I have a, a blog, uh, my own blog called Free Association, which uh, will have overlap with the Libertarian Institute, but occasionally something that's not there. Uh, that's not outright political. And that's at Sheldon. You can get that at sheldonrichmond.com. Um, and so those, those are the two place, best places to, to find me. Great. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on. And like I said, at the beginning of the show, I, I really owe you. You're a, a small, but very significant part of my uh, libertarian journey. And I've always been very fond of you and your work since, uh, uh, since then. And, uh, just yeah, thanks for coming on. Well, I'm honored. I'm honored about what, what you just said, and of course, I'm, I'm also very pleased to, that you invited me on. I had a great time, and I would yeah have me back anytime, especially to talk about the Palestine book. Okay, we'll definitely do that. Yeah, th okay. thanks, Sheldon. Thank you. And there you have it. I'd like to thank Sheldon Richmond for his time and wisdom, and for all the great writing. 
uh, he's done for the libertarian movement over the last 40, almost 50 years, I think. I'd also like to thank Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And I'd like to thank everyone who gives to Mises Pack at TakeHumanAction.com and everyone who shares, rates, reviews, and subscribes to Decentralized Revolution. Get registered for the Money Bomb by becoming a contributor at TakeHumanAction.com or by registering for the drawing alone at same address, TakeHumanAction.com. Go up to the top of the page where it says Money Bomb, and you can take care of that. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.